you'd like to open up your Bible to the book of Romans, we are back in chapter 1 of this uh, wonderful letter that we have just started to study through recently. Grateful to hear uh, from the second letter that Peter wrote to the churches in Asia Minor last week. Pastor Paul preached a faithful message to us, and so now we're returning to Romans chapter 1 as we're going to take another uh, deep look at this theological introduction. Uh, The book of Romans uh, has the longest introduction of all of Paul's letters. He has much to say to them, and we're going to discuss a little bit why. Part of the reason why he goes into such uh, great depth here in the very introduction of his letter concerning some of the things that he believes uh, as he communicates uh, an introduction to this church in Rome. So this morning we're going to pick up right where we left off two weeks ago in our first sermon. Paul began his letter saying a few key things about himself Uh, Remember, he did not plant the church that he's writing to. The church in Rome was was built um, on on other people's ministry. And so he has to build an ethos with them. He has to establish a connection with these people. There are sometimes uh, individuals who reach out to us trying to ask our church to support them in mission, Uh, some of which are preaching the gospel well, some of which we have no idea what they're preaching. And so we have to get to know them. We have to Uh, have an assurance that this is somebody that we would stand alongside in ministry that would teach the kind of things that are taught from this pulpit. And so this video that we just watched on Cal Hebsch and his family um, is just a way of reminding us that we need to be connected with folks that are very gospel-minded, that care about the lost and are preaching the true gospel uh, in the world so that those who hear about the hope that they can have in Christ will hear it accurately from his word. And so Paul's trying to establish this bridge between himself and a people who knew of Paul, but most of whom did not actually know Paul, did not have a a personal relationship with Paul. So last time, examining just the first verse of Romans 1, we considered what the apostle had to say about himself. He described himself as a slave of Jesus, happened to be in the service of his king, ready to be serving the Lord God in whatever way he would direct Paul to serve. He described himself as an apostle, as one who is authorized by someone greater than himself and sent out by Christ to accomplish a representative work in the name of Christ. And then he spoke about how he was set apart for this gospel, how he has a very specific focus and mission. He can't just go out and do whatever he wants to do because God has designated for him to do a very specific work. And he has set him apart for what? For the gospel specifically. And so as the introduction advances, Paul also gives some preliminary remarks about two more important subjects. He's going to talk about his views on the gospel itself. And then he's going to turn his attention to Jesus, God's son who is the engine of the gospel, that which gives it power and makes it work. And so to sum it up in Paul's prologue, Paul says, this is who I am, this is what I preach, and this is who I serve. Much later in this letter, Paul will give us a little more insight into his future plans. He had a great desire to embark on a mission expansion into the land of Spain. And he was hoping that the church in Rome would partner with him in that endeavor. And so in Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 23, we can read about some remarks that he gives to the church in Rome to try to prepare him for that mission he hopes to engage with because he wants to join hands with them in that effort. So reading verses 23 through 29. But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain 
and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So though Paul did not plant this church in Rome, they have been saved in the same manner that all saints are saved in. They have been saved by grace, through faith, in Jesus to the glory of God. And so Paul is building a rapport with them in hopes of partnering in a pioneering work with them in the future. So before, the, they, uh, before we examine rather the second and third subjects in this theological introduction, let us read the first seven verses together again, together again so that we can have them fresh in our minds. Beginning with verse 1 and then reading through verse 7 of Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, as we just sang, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together and thank the Lord for what he'll teach us this morning. Almighty God, we are so grateful for the servants that you have set apart for this gospel work, especially for the Apostle Paul who wrote the words that we'll be meditating on this morning. We thank you, God, for his diligence to set everything aside as you set him apart for the gospel ministry that he was a part of. Lord, his love was not just for one location, but for all the churches everywhere that were preaching the truth. And I praise you, Lord God, that that means his love was for us too, and your love is for us. And we know that because you have provided for us everything that we need in the Holy Scriptures to be a church that is glorifying to you and that magnifies your name. So help us to not take lightly the blessing of having the Scripture available to us and before us, Help us to take its words very seriously, Lord God, and to want to be faithful in obedience to the things that you have given to us, direction that your church is to follow, so that we might be pleasing to you and represent your name well. We ask all these things in the great name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This is who I am, this is what I preach, and this is who I serve. The three subjects of Paul's introduction. Let's now consider uh, the subject of Paul's preaching and the great focus of the letter that we are studying through. Paul describes the gospel. And what is the gospel? Paul does not take the time to totally define it here, but it's, it's worth a brief outline. Sadly, many believers freeze in their boots when you ask them to give a brief explanation of the gospel. What is the gospel? How have you been saved? Many may start to mention one aspect of the gospel that sticks out to them, but will fall short of giving a full, well-rounded explanation of what the gospel truly means. Since the gospel represents God's plan of salvation for sinners, 
It only makes sense that every believer redeemed by grace would take the time to commit to memory a clear and concise definition of what the gospel is. And an easy way to communicate the gospel, and really if you want to remember it, if you think to yourself, well, that's me too, Pastor. I, I love the gospel, and, but the, I just don't know what, what really entails the gospel. What are the boundaries to the gospel? How do I communicate it in just a couple of quick sentences? Well, a really easy way to do that is to break it down into four essential parts. First, the, the first part that you want to mention is God. When somebody needs to know about the gospel, they need to know that there is a God. And that's not a given in the world that we live in today. People don't automatically assume that there is a God in the universe. Many, in fact, have been convinced that, that that's a fool's way of thinking. But we need to tell people that there is a God, that He is holy, and all things were made by Him. Secondly, we need to talk about man. God made man, but man has broken God's law, and he has earned his judgment. So we establish that there is a God, that there is a Holy One that looks after what He has made, that, that has expectations for His creation. And man is part of that creation, but man has broken God's expectations. He has neglected the covenant that he was um, born into, that he was, he was drawn to, and he has broken the covenant of the law. And by doing so, man has earned judgment. So there's a God and there's a man, but those two are not joined in, in good fellowship. Sin has driven a wedge between God and man. The third essential element of the gospel has to do with redemption. To accomplish redemption, to reconcile man to himself, God was pleased to send a Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus did what man failed to do. He lived according to the law, and then he died in the place of sinners like us to pay for our sin. Not only did he die, but he displayed his power by rising again on the third day, triumphant, over sin and death. So there is a God. God made man. Man broke God's law. And so there's separation between God and man. Then redemption comes through God's perfect plan of sending Jesus. God, man, redemption. And there's one uh, final aspect of this, which is response. Response. Each man will give a response to this good news by either receiving or rejecting Jesus Christ. There is no third option. And that's an important aspect of the gospel, that we can't be in some middle ground limbo with the Lord God where we're not sinners and we're not damned, but we're also not really following after Him. We're not trusting in Him. You are either in the kingdom by the blood of Jesus Christ and by no other way, or you are outside of the kingdom of God. And so every presentation of the gospel should urge people to decide what they're doing. Are you walking in, in, in the ways of the Lord God or are you rejecting the Lord God? identify that you are either saved by grace or you are a rebel to the kingdom that God is king over. So that, in a nutshell, in four simple parts, is the gospel. These themes will be expanded upon in great detail as we work our way through the book of Romans. In fact, it is widely understood that no book of the New Testament gives such a thorough treatment of the gospel as the book of Romans does. For the purposes of this theological introduction, though, Paul doesn't break it down into its four parts. Instead, Paul chooses to declare three important facts about the gospel. First, it is this gospel to which Paul has been called. It is a gospel that is precious to him because in every way, Christ's calling of Paul is hinging upon and dependent upon this gospel message. Now, last week I made mention of the unique way that Jesus commandeered Paul's life. 
and thrust him into ministry. So I won't go over that in depth here again. I only need to mention that Paul, who is happy to call himself a slave to Jesus, counts the gospel and its teaching throughout the world as the most crucial aspect of his work. I cannot say enough about how important and primary the gospel is to all of Paul's work as an apostle. In fact, it would probably be more beneficial to you. It would probably carry more weight if I simply let Paul say that for himself. As the bedrock of his calling and ministry, Paul almost never wastes time getting to the gospel in almost every letter that he writes. And so let me blaze through this somewhat quickly, but I want to show you and give you sort of a bird's eye view of how important the gospel is to every letter that Paul writes. 1 Corinthians 1.17, God did not send Paul to baptize, but to preach the gospel, the gospel. Galatians 1.6, Paul speaks about the exclusivity of the gospel and admonishes the Galatian believers for taking steps away from that true gospel, for making room for this almost gospel that had started to spread in Galatia. So he's immediately addressing this, this danger of compromising the one true gospel. Ephesians 1 verse 13, Paul points out that upon believing the gospel of salvation in Jesus, the Ephesians were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of their inheritance in the eternal kingdom of God. So much hope in the first chapter of Ephesians 1, if, if these rains and all these clouds have sapped away your vitamin D and you're feeling down and lethargic and you're feeling depressed, go open up the book of Ephesians and read that first chapter because there's so much light and so much happiness and promise in that chapter. And what does it all hinge upon? It hinges upon the glorious gospel by which God saves us. Philippians 1.5, Paul thanks the Lord for the Philippians and the and constantly remembers their partnership with him in what? In the gospel. They are partners in ministry together. Colossians 1, verses 5 through 7. It is the gospel that is causing the brothers and sisters in Colossae to bear good spiritual fruit. And Paul notes that the gospel is having that kind of an impact everywhere in the world that it is being preached. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 again, verses 5 through 7, right up front. Paul is confident that those in the church in Thessalonica are indeed called by God. Why? Because of the fact that when the gospel was preached among them, it resulted not only in learning in an intellectual way, but in change among the people. It resulted in a powerful movement of the Holy Spirit, turning their hearts away from sin and towards Christ. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1 again, verse 8. Paul reminds the Thessalonians that their obedience to the gospel assures them of God's help in times of affliction, while warning those who reject the gospel that the result of such a response is eventual judgment. Again, that gospel message, when it's proclaimed, needs to make it very clear. There are two ways that man responds to this gospel. You're either trusting in Christ and receiving the benefits and the promises of the gospel, or you are rejecting Christ. And you are looking forward to judgment if your heart does not change. 1 Timothy 1.11, this letter written to a fellow minister of the gospel, he speaks about the gospel as being set forth as the standard from which all doctrine and practice is directed. Paul and the other apostles have been entrusted to hold to this anchor in their ministry. And Paul is encouraging this young pastor in Ephesus, Timothy, to make sure that the gospel is preserved and, and preached in truth. The gospel is sets the standard for what needs to be preached 
in the churches of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 11, it says, Do not be ashamed of the gospel. He urges Timothy instead to be ready to suffer for the sake of the gospel, which is being spread through the whole world and upheld by those who care for Christ. It was this same gospel that Paul was appointed a preacher to, an apostle and a teacher. And he is now training up young Timothy to do the same. You see this overwhelming evidence that Paul's ministry is in every way connected to the gospel of Jesus Christ. His purpose is wrapped up in this glorious good news. And it will remain central to all of his great efforts. There is no need for him to stray from it. There is no need for him to innovate or to, to, to write a, a new chapter and to think of something uh, novel and, and something that the churches have not heard of yet. He's going to stick with the gospel. Nor does he allow any secondary issues to interfere with his service to the gospel. In fact, every time Paul is practically addressing an issue among the churches in these letters that he writes, what does he turn them back to? Turns them back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the remedy to whatever problem they are encountering as a church. And so this gospel is the gospel to which Paul was called. Second thing that he says about this gospel is that it is God's promise. It is the fulfillment of that promise delivered through the prophets and the scriptures that those prophets wrote. And so when we see the gospel bloom, it is because first the seeds of the gospel were laid in the Old Testament scriptures that God delivered to us through the prophets. And as this came to pass, as these promises and projections became realities, the gospel has showed itself to be in all ways the fulfillment of God's great promises. The gospel has tremendous force on its own, but that force is amplified considerably when we realize that it is not a departure from what God had been working to accomplish since the garden. It is not an addendum or an appendix to it. Rather, it is the culmination and the fulfillment of all those strategic things. Paul will say it like this later in chapter 3 of Romans. He says in verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so what Paul is saying there in chapter 3 is that those Old Testament writings of the prophets and the law that came through Moses, they were not intended to say, but rather to reveal our need for salvation through God's amazing grace. And so those Old Testament laws all bear witness to the perfection of Christ who would come to fulfill the law. When we say bear witness, this is legal language that indicates the terms of what the covenant must be and what it is intended to accomplish. Those things were all established beforehand in the writings of these faithful and godly men. Had Jesus ignored those promises and went a totally new and unexpected way, we would have no salvation. Our hope for forgiveness is rooted in the fact that God had declared a way for our sin to be defeated and Jesus walked exactly in that way. The law could not save a crooked people, but by fulfilling the law, Jesus was able to qualify to bring us grace. He was able to give his perfect and stain-free life as a sacrifice in place of our broken lives. We see that gospel foretold in verses such as Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 11. The prophet says, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, 
Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. The words good news literally mean gospel. That's what gospel stands for. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. We have here in Isaiah a testimony to the hope of Emmanuel, which is that concept that God will come and dwell with his people, which is exactly what Jesus did when he took on flesh, when he added to his divine nature a human nature so that he might walk in the same ways that we walk. He came with might. And this speaks of both Jesus' saving accomplishment when he says to us, fear not, those sins that are damnation and judgment to you, they don't have ultimate power over you if you are in Christ. Fear not. But it also speaks of his judging accomplishment. If you are not in Christ, then Christ's recompense is before him. He will come and judge those who are not in covenant with the Lord God through his blood. He will tend to his flock like a shepherd. Jesus made it known that he is the good shepherd of the flock. He will protect and provide for them. They will know his voice and they will obey what he commands. We see more evidence of this in Isaiah 6, uh, 60 verse 6. It says, A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. And so there are literally dozens of Old Testament scriptures that have direct reference to the ministry of Christ in his earthly vessel and of the great saving work that he did in triumphing over sin and death. We have good reason to believe that the church body in Rome was largely comprised not of Jewish believers, but mostly of Gentile converts. And yet Paul considers it quite important to establish straight away that the gospel he is commissioned to preach and spread and defend is the long-awaited fruits of seeds that had been planted beforehand through the Old Testament, through hundreds of years of prophetic witness being bared to. You will see as we go, their Gentile background didn't exempt them from needing to know the history of God bringing the gospel to light through Israel, his chosen nation. Thirdly, uh, a third thing that Paul reveals about this gospel is that the gospel concerns in every way the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The contents and subject of this good news is what sets it apart as unique and holy and makes it not just regular old good news, but the good news. You see, in the Roman Empire, good news, that phrase good news, gospel, in a generic sense was a common idea. In the culture of the Roman Empire, good news typically referred to the proclamation of good things that were happening in the Roman Empire. It was a unifying message that the king, the emperor, would send out from province to province saying, hey, rejoice, your emperor has conquered another province. We are now in charge of Bithynia. Uh, or it would be a, a proclamation that, that the emperor had instilled a new prefect over a, a certain subsect of, of uh, the, the Roman people. This good news would be official news sent out by heralds throughout the empire, and it would be kind of an update about what was going on in the, emp uh, the empire, no matter where you were at. And so Paul had to differentiate this as a distinctly better kind of good news, a spiritual good news, for it is the good news concerning Jesus Christ, 
who is author and finisher of our faith and whose work is proclaimed in this special and foundational message. And so this good news is good news about Jesus. The third facet of the gospel naturally gives way to the last, last major point of the discussion in Paul's prologue, where he cannot help but speak in glowing, glowing terms about Jesus, the reason that we have this good news. The gospel is properly Christ's gospel, though Paul will at times call it his own gospel. He re- he'll refer to it as my gospel. Always in his mind and heart is this idea that the gospel is properly Christ's gospel. It must be fundamentally understood to be the good news that Jesus brings forth by the way of his scripture-fulfilling atonement. If there is no Jesus, there is no good news. If he does not humble himself and take on flesh, we have no suitable sacrifice. If he is not tempted in all ways like us, but without sin, then he would himself be stained by the same curse that we are stained by. He could not die in our place, for he would be beholden to death. Had he not kept the law perfectly, he would be in our same predicament and could in no way present a way of escape for us, escape for the curse that affected us and separated us from the God who made us. If he had not lived a life that fulfilled the necessary requirements laid out by the law and the prophets, it would remain undone. The work would yet to be accomplished. And yet we know that on the cross, what did Jesus say about his work? That it is indeed finished. But had those things not been taken care of, then the Father could not be pleased in Jesus. If the good shepherd had not uh, ventured into the dangerous wilderness to find his lost sheep, then we would remain as lost. So apart from Jesus, there is no gospel. There is no good news. There would only be our sin. And because God is a just and a holy God, there would be a great need for judgment. For God cannot turn away and, and, and not look upon sin forever. He must deal with it. And so we should not be surprised that the Apostle Paul, so personally and radically changed by this very gospel, and and by Jesus who called him to this gospel, cannot help himself but spend time, even here at the very beginning of his lengthy and detailed letter, laying out a brief preview of how important Jesus Christ is, both to himself personally and to anyone who counts the news of his death, burial, and resurrection as a good news. We rejoice in the things that Jesus has done, not because they have the potential to save, but because they are actually accomplishing salvation in the lives of those to whom God is applying this work. Someone told me that the, uh, the jackpot for the lottery right now, I don't play the lottery, but somebody told me that it was up to a billion dollars. Is that good news to you, church? It might be good news to the one person who wins it all, but for the rest of us, it isn't really good news at all. It's simply a random fact. But Jesus' gospel is good news, for it is certainly redeeming those whom God has set apart for himself. It is working salvation in the lives of lost, rebellious sinners. If Jesus' work has impacted you, you have more than hope. You have blessed assurance, church. Your trajectory has completely changed, and forever you will be indebted to this Jesus and his accomplished victory for your life and vitality. Paul has several things to say about Jesus Christ. We've already touched on the fact that Paul counts himself to be like a slave to this man. He considers Jesus to be his rightful master. And so Paul has alluded to the power that Jesus wields and the authority with which Jesus directs his people and instructs them how they are to represent him 
and his awesome name as they live their lives in reflection and victory and power. But beginning in the second half of the third verse, Paul begins to rattle off some key things that he not only believes but openly declares about the one who called Paul and sent him out as an apostle. He says, Who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, among all nations. So let's, let's think about this in its parts now. The first two things that Paul would have us consider work as a parallel team. Two ideas that represent, if you will, two sides of the same coin that is the person of Jesus Christ. The first side of that coin speaks according to the authentic humanity of Jesus, and the second side of that coin will speak according to the unique divinity of Jesus. First, his humanity. Jesus was descended from David. How? According to the flesh. Think of that word according to because we're going to see that as a, a contrast that Paul's going to set up in a minute uh, about the opposite side of the coin. But this first side of the coin, he was descended from David according to the flesh. On its most basic level, the last part of verse 3 in Romans 1 simply declares that Jesus took on flesh. He, he became a living material being. Uh, and, and that should assure us against any false proclamations that when Jesus came to this earth, that he didn't really manifest as a true physical human being, but he came in a, as a spirit, or he came as a, as a hologram of, of holiness, or that he came almost as a man. No, he came in the flesh. He became a human like we are human. Often in Paul's writing, by the way, it's worth uh, kind of clarifying this, Often in Paul's writing, the flesh, that phrase, is meant to indicate a, Paul's, a, a person's fallen state. The church has adapted that kind of understanding of the flesh, and we often use it in practical ways as we speak to one another about our walk. For example, if I'm overwhelmed, my plate's too full, I've been saying yes to too many things, and I'm stressed out, and I head home, and I've got you know this uh, crisis on my mind and I've got the leaks at church that's causing this wetness on the carpet over here on my mind and I'm thinking about um, you know the the car accident that I got in before all these things are on my head and then my little four-year-old comes up to me and she starts making noise and she asks me a thousand questions uh, she's constantly demanding my attention she's not sinning in any real sense but simply testing my patience and if in my weakened state in my aggravated heart and mind I raise my voice to my four-year-old little girl and I tell her to leave me alone. Go find somebody else right now. I can't help you. I might feel quite bad about that. I know that I would. I might evaluate my actions in hindsight and say, you know what? I was in the flesh in that moment. That phrase, in the flesh, means that I was living according to my fallen sinful tendencies rather than conducting myself according to the spirit that is now within me, according to the righteousness that Christ has given to me. So we use that phrase, in the flesh, and we got that from Paul. Paul often talks about the flesh in those terms. But he's not talking about the flesh in that way as it applies to Christ. For Christ has no sin. Paul does not intend that particular meaning for him because Jesus is absolutely stain-free. He does not receive the curse of Adam like we have. He never sinned. So according to the flesh does not mean worldly or carnal in the evil sense. It means that Jesus presented himself to us 
by taking on an authentic human nature and dwelling alongside us in a physical body like ours. Remember, Paul is revealing some important details of what he believes about Christ to these Roman Christians so that they'll have confidence that Paul is himself a true Christian as well and a source of instruction that can be trusted. So essentially he's saying, Hello, Romans. Greetings. I am the Apostle Paul. And just so that you know, the Jesus that I serve was a true man. He wasn't some partial man or a man that was just you know, gifted with a little special anointing for a while. He was a true man in and of himself. He was not a spiritual hologram. He was born according to the flesh, and he gladly took on all the parameters of assuming that nature. So this is theological clarification on Paul's part. More specifically, this verse identifies Jesus as a particular kind of man. He is the promised offspring of David, King David, who was well known to all the Jews, who had been spoken of in the utterances of the prophets for so many years before he actually came. In verse 2, when Paul reminded his Roman audience that this gospel represents the fulfillment of the things declared in the Old Testament, one of the key things that he is pointing out is the proclamation that despite the fact that sin and rebellion had caused Israel to be exiled from the land of promise that they had received as a gift, despite the fact that other non-believing Gentile kings now ruled over them and controlled their territories, despite all those true and sad things, the situation they were in was not going to last forever. They were not doomed to be without a land forever. God had promised King David that eventually one of his offspring would rise up and reestablish the kingdom in such a superior way that it would never again fall. It would never again be overthrown by those who walk in darkness. What a promise. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13, spoken by way of Nathan the prophet, God establishes this pact with David. He says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This promise is reinforced, and it's given clarity and detail in several Old Testament passages, such as 1 Corinthians 7, verses 11, or 17, verses 11 through 14, 2 Chronicles 6, 16, Jeremiah 23, 5, Isaiah 9, 7, again and again, God wants to remind us that the seed of David will come and he will establish his kingdom. And once again, the throne will be filled by one who proclaims the excellencies of Yahweh. Jesus is the realization of that promise. All those covenant blessings are coming to pass in the life of Christ. He has come and with him the eternal kingdom has come. We read about that in Luke 17, verses 20 through 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered to them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Little did they know, they were speaking to the king of the kingdom. The kingdom is the inaugurated coming of Jesus and its eternal nature is proclaimed by way of his victorious resurrection, after which Jesus first showed himself to many witnesses and then ascended to take his place on the throne, seated at the right hand of God the Father. What is he doing there now, church? He is reigning. His kingdom is here. 
the millennial reign of Jesus has been established. And the promises made to David all those years ago are being currently kept by our capable king. The book of Acts chapter 13 records a sermon that Paul preached in the synagogue of a Roman city named Antioch. You might have heard of a place like that. And in that sermon, Paul directly addresses this idea that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises made to David. Acts chapter 13, verses 22 and 23. He, God, raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. God has kept his promise to David by bringing forth his only begotten son and by doing so in such a way that Jesus also came forth from the promised line of David. And Paul is not going to hesitate to proclaim this prophetic manifestation of Christ. In other words, church, simply saying that Jesus qualifies. He qualifies to be the one that the scriptures spoke of for so many generations before Jesus came. By assuming a human nature in this way and by this bloodline, Jesus has integrated himself into the history of the Jews. This kingly aspect of Christ reminds us that the mission that he is on is not just a mission of redemption, by the way. It includes taking the throne and the establishment of an eternal kingdom. Is redemption a part of that? Absolutely. But it is not the only reason why he came. And he is currently reigning as the Lord over all that he has claimed as his own. I remember uh, many years ago, we were uh, up at my in-law's house, and they had a nice pool, and there was a party going on. There were several families there. And uh, one of my children, was it Sam or Henry who fell in the pool, miss? One of my kids. I'm going to say it's Sam. Sam, you're going to be the one in my illustration today. Sam was waddling around, and he just went off the edge and went into the pool, and nobody noticed it. Nobody saw it. He was like a foot and a half, two feet under the water. One person noticed it. I think he was a, a firefighter who happened to be there, who was you know, just a friend of the family, and he ran over and reached down and plucked my child out of the water and saved him. Now, I don't know his name. He's not a part of my life today. I, I don't think of him all the time. In fact, that was true salvation. It, it, it redeemed him. It, it made him not dead. He was not a floater, right? And so he needed to be rescued. But that's not the same kind of salvation that Jesus brings. He doesn't come to save you and then go on his way and leave you to your life. He saves you into something new. He redeems you into a kingdom that he is the king of. And you are now a subject of his, and you will be forever connected to him if he has brought you near to him by grace. Jesus didn't save us simply because he happened to be in the right place at the right time, like that firefighter. He saved us for our benefit, but he also saved us for his benefit. Jesus is saving a people to belong to him, to be his, to dwell with him in his kingdom forever. Titus chapter 2, verse 14 says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So yes, he came to redeem, but he's doing more than just redeeming. And it's not just for our sake. He's redeeming us for the sake of his great name. 
So you've been redeemed to bear the name of Christ. You've been redeemed to show the mercy and the kindness of God in the ways that he has overcome your sin and made you a new creation. So that's the first aspect of the the, the coin that I spoke of earlier, that Jesus has a truly human nature. But let's turn that coin over in our hand now. We've examined with admiration the first side, but Paul is making sure that we understand that we can't really say we know the whole of Jesus unless we look at both sides of his unique character and nature. Jesus truly is man. But as Paul declares in verse 4, this Jesus was also declared to be the Son of God. This speaks to his divinity. Paul does not mean this is a, uh, he doesn't mean this in a creational sense, okay? When it says that he was declared to be the Son of God, that doesn't mean that he made him the Son of God. He doesn't mean it in a covenantal sense, as if God adopted Jesus to be his son. He means it in a metaphysical sense. He means it in the sense that Jesus meant it when he declared to the Pharisees that he was the I am, and they tried to stone him. Jesus is the son of God in the fullest possible meaning of the term. He is God in the flesh. And if you have seen him, you have seen the father. So he is speaking of himself in his divinity. Three additional details add depth to this statement that Jesus is the Son of God. He was declared to be so, how? In power, according to the spirit of holiness. He was declared to be so by his resurrection from the dead, and he is declared to be so as Jesus Christ, Lord of all that he reigns over. So let's look at that first one. He was declared to be God's Son in power. Does this mean that the declaration itself was powerful? In some ways it was. You know, angels were heralding the coming of this newborn king. It was arranged supernaturally by the hand of God through the virgin womb of a Mary that was a virgin Mary that was noteworthy, if nothing else. Dignified men of wisdom came from faraway lands to mark the advent of Jesus' birth and to pay him homage and honor. We wouldn't be wrong to say that the de- declaration of Jesus' birth was a powerful thing. But what Paul is communicating here is not the power of the the modes of communication of of Jesus' sonship, but rather his description here is of the power of the fullness of his being. Jesus did not give up his divinity at the incarnation, friends. When he took on flesh, he didn't stop being God the Son. But for a time that he lived on earth, this power that still existed in him was veiled to us. We only got to see glimpses of it. We only got to see small little sparks of that divine nature coming through as God the Father instructed God the Son. But upon his resurrection, Jesus has revealed to us more of what James and John and Peter saw on the mountain when they witnessed his transfiguration. The full display of his power and glory, which is characteristic of Christ's divine nature. There's an interesting side note here. Uh, If you go back and you dig through the Greek, now I'm not smart enough to have figured this out myself. I learned this from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who has some wonderful sermons in the book of Romans. But if you look back at the original Greek, when it talks about that Jesus being raised in the power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, it doesn't actually say his resurrection there. It says by resurrection of people. And the people is plural. People is plural. Now that's interesting. What does that mean? That means that it's speaking of Jesus as being the first fruits of many who will rise from the, from the grave. Christ's power is displayed 
in his resurrection, first and foremost, we see that the grave has no victory over him, cannot hold him down, cannot keep him dead, because he is more than just a man, he is also God in human flesh. But his resurrection has been promised to be the first of many resurrections. And so when Christ raises each of those who believe up on that last day and gives us a new body, then that will be an expression of Christ's power as well. That his power will be seen even more fully when he redeems for himself his people in such a way that they have an eternal body that is ready to worship him forever. I just thought that was a very interesting pickup in the Greek. One last thing is said in description of Jesus here. He is, present tense, not future tense, not he will be, but he is our Lord. He is Lord of all, King of the hearts of those who gladly submit to him. And so he is the one that reigns over his kingdom. We should not look at Jesus as anything less than what Paul looks at Jesus. And he sees Jesus as his master, the one who commands him and directs him. And so if we're to see both sides of this coin, we are to see the the Jesus who came and took on flesh, but we're also supposed to understand the divine authority that he wields, that he is Lord over all whom he saves. So we cannot treat him as our consultant. We cannot treat him as uh, our fallback plan. If We'll just live our lives our way until things go wrong, and then we'll bounce back and see if Jesus can give us a hand. We must recognize him as the king of our lives and of our hearts knowing that this one who came in power through his resurrection displayed his his authority over death and over sin is the one who directs our lives even now. He is the one through whom grace and apostleship comes. What does grace and apostleship bring about? When God brings his grace through the preaching of the gospel and these apostles establish the right way for the church to act, it brings about a model for obedience in the faith. This obedience is a benefit first and foremost to the name of Jesus. For those who follow after him in the pattern that he has set forth show their love for Jesus by the way that they obey his commands. This name is exalted among those who rejoice for their Lord. And this nation, or the nation, is properly here referring to the Gentiles who were people, um, who are the specific people that God's mission is directed directly at. We're going to speak more about this in future messages, so I don't want to get into too much uh, time right now. My time is running short. But the word for ethnos there indicates uh, that he is the one through whom grace and apostleship comes to the people, the the Gentile people. Uh, We have seen here this morning in the opening salvo of Paul's famous letter to the Romans that Jesus Christ and the, the gospel that proclaims Christ's victory over sin are of utmost importance to Paul. He considers them to be so fundamentally crucial to who he is that he cannot hope to establish any kind of meaningful connection to the church in Rome if he does not do so on the basis of these two important concepts. To the Christian who is reading this letter's introduction, I would offer this question in conclusion. Is Christ and his gospel of similar importance to you? Would the people who know you testify that you love the gospel of Jesus Christ and put Jesus Christ as of first importance in your life the way that Paul does? Can someone know you without knowing that Jesus is your Savior? Have you been so impacted by the gospel that anyone who desires to draw near to you must at the very least seek to grab hold of a knowledge of what salvation is and why you now count it as your gift from God Almighty? It is common in this day and age 
age for, for, for Christians when they meet someone new to delay in speaking about their faith. And they often think, well, I'll just let this person get to know me a little bit before I uh, you know, bombard them with my testimony of how Christ has saved me. But isn't that a contradiction in terms? I'll let them get to know me before they get to know my Savior, when who you are should truly be uh, uh, defined by who your Savior is and what he has done. That's how Paul treats life. He looks at those whom he meets for the first time and says, I'm Paul, and this is my Jesus, and this is the gospel that has saved me. Christian, if you befriend someone and you neglect to tell them about the one who saved you, if you refrain from mentioning anything about the gospel that has defined you and has spared you from being a rebel against God, then you're asking them to know you, and yet you're leaving out the most crucially important aspect of who you are. You're denying them the knowledge of what matters most to you and what really makes a difference in your life. If you tell them about your work, about your hobbies, about your goals, even about your family, but you don't ever bother to mention that you are a recipient of a priceless grace, that you've been adopted into the family of God, that you've laid aside the things of this world, and that you now store up your treasures in heaven because they matter so radically more to you than the things of this earth that are passing away. If you leave out the gospel and you leave out your Savior, then the person you are trying to get to know is getting an utterly deficient picture of who you are. Brothers and sisters, the gospel of Jesus is so much more than a gateway. It is so much more than a doorway that you walk through to get to a new place. It must concern everything that we are as people. I have a, a brother in the Lord who loves evangelism. He's so committed to it. He's more gifted at it than I am, for sure. For that, I'm grateful. I praise God for this man. But one of the things that he does that I don't think is particularly helpful he always carries about with him when he's engaging in evangelism, he carries about two things. He carries about him tracts, which I love. Those are actually great. I encourage you to keep gospel tracts with you. Do you know what a gospel track is? It's a small little pamphlet that just gives a brief rundown of the gospel that we spoke of earlier. If you have a hard time remembering God, man, redemption, and response, then a gospel track is a great way to keep you on track. And if you would like some gospel tracts, up in the fellowship hall, there's a great big acrylic container that holds uh, dozens of these gospel tracts. Help yourself to them. We've got boxes full. So if you need them to share with people, take some of those tracts, carry them around in your pocket, put them in your car in case you ever have an opportunity to minister to somebody or point them towards the Lord. So I didn't have a problem at all with the tracts. But he also carried with him a small stack of these little yellow tickets. They're gold in color, yellow in color. And when he shares the gospel, he speaks of it as a person's ticket to heaven. The gospel is your ticket to heaven. Without the gospel, you can't get into heaven. And if that person, in hearing the gospel, seems to respond favorably to it, wants to trust in the Lord Jesus, he prays with them, and then he gives them one of those tickets, and then encourages them to get involved with the church. And that's a good thing to do. But it's that ticket that I don't like so much. I, I just have a, a struggle with the ticket. Why? What's wrong with the ticket? I think it sends a message that the gospel just gets you in. The gospel is the thing that just opens a door for you to not have to go to hell anymore. Now you're getting into heaven. When you go on a trip, you need a ticket to get on a plane. Although you don't anymore. You just need a phone, right? You just beep, your QR code. But you need something, something that says you paid for that ticket, right, to get on the plane. But once you've used it, you throw that ticket away. 
It's not essential to the good time that you have there on your trip, wherever you're going. When you go to a playoff game for a sports team, hopefully it's not on the Lord's Day, you pay way too much for that ticket. And that ticket grants you entrance into a stadium, right? You give them the ticket, they let you in. But the ticket isn't the experience itself. It only gets you through the door. Some people keep those tickets for nostalgia. They've got little scrapbooks as a reminder of what they've done. But those tickets aren't fundamental to your day-to-day -day life. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is fundamental to your day-to-day -day life. It's not something that you acknowledge, you receive, you use it up, and then you go on to other things. As Christians, we benefit from thinking regularly, always, of this gospel of Jesus Christ. We benefit from thinking constantly of how fundamental our relationship to Christ is to every other relationship that we have with people. The gospel is not just a doorway that we walk through at the beginning of our walk with God and then leave behind. It is the new world that we enter into by way of grace. Jesus Christ saved us, not just to spare us from the agony of damnation, but to establish us as a people for himself, as citizens of his eternal heavenly kingdom. For the redeemed, the gospel has become and will always be fundamental to everything that we are and everything that we experience. Paul cannot help but rejoice in his Savior and in the beauty of the gospel right up front as he speaks with these Roman believers because there is nothing more important that he could discuss with the people in that city. And we will see that as the letter progresses. Paul will not leave the gospel behind in the introduction and go on to more practically important matters. When he addresses practically important matters, it is the gospel that unlocks the problems that people are having in the church. There is nothing more practically important to Paul than the truth by which we have been saved and in which we stand. May we, along with our brother, the Apostle Paul, praise our Savior and thank him for the gospel by which he has saved us. Please bow with me in prayer. God, we thank you for this morning and we ask that you would humble our hearts, Father, that we would see the importance of this foundational truth that is laid out for us Help us, God, to rejoice in the intricacies of doctrine that Paul is going to bring forth to us. Prepare my heart as I bring this information to my people and as I urge them to love Christ and the gospel all the more. I, I'm urging myself in the same respect. Father, help us to maintain a, a great respect and appreciation for what was done to make us who we are today. And let us not think of the gospel as used up and old or or just the milk that we drank when we were babies, but now we've moved on from it, Lord God. Help us to continue to be thankful for these principles and to walk our lives every day in light of the impact that they have made upon us. And may we do this to the glory of the one who saved us, Jesus Christ. There is none like him. And we ask these things in his perfect name. Amen.